With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Conversation on Justice. Uh, we welcome you to this episode on this Thursday afternoon, where we have we're having conversations about biblical and social justice issues. It is our intent to talk about issues that are relevant to times such as this, whatever that may look like. We welcome your participation in the topics that are being discussed. Believe it or not, we believe that you have just as much to contribute to the conversation as our invited guest. Today we are discussing racism in the church. We'll be taking a look at the historical and present day implicit and explicit biases of the church as it relates to race and racism. We are delighted to have with us today uh, the Reverend Daniel Wilson, the pastor of Williamsburg Baptist Church in Williamsburg, Virginia uh, to talk about this important topic. Welcome, Daniel.
We're having some technical problems uh, with with Reverend Wilson, and we'll be back with you in a few minutes. Thank you. We got Reverend Wilson on the line now. Uh, can you hear us okay? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Finally, working through this maze of problems. We can My get started with this topic for the day. Uh, and as I told the audience previously, we're talking about uh, racism in the church, and we're very fortunate to have you with us today. So I'd like to start off, and if you would tell us a little bit about the Reverend Daniel Wilson and how he got where he is today. Oh, my goodness. Uh, well, <laughs> let's see. Um, well, I, I was born in a very uh, conservative Christian context, the son of a, a missionary kid and a pastor's kid. Uh, my mother is Brazilian and my father's American, uh, but grew up in Brazil as a missionary kid. And uh, my first memories are of church. Um, let's see, I, I uh, eventually felt a call into ministry around my uh, just after graduating high school and uh, went to a very conservative Bible college um, in Florida, uh, majored in Bible, and then um, went off to seminary. And uh, already my mind started to really uh, look at my own tradition and, and think through um, some of the things that I uh, pretty much took for granted. And, and um, I kind of joke around with folks that there was a, a time when um, – when becoming an evangelical was uh, a paradigm shift for me. I, I was raised in a, a pretty fundamentalist context. And so um, I went to an evangelical seminary up in Philadelphia and uh, my mind continued to change on some things. And so uh, about partway through the program there, I decided to transfer uh, to uh, something of a more progressive seminary. So I went to Fuller Theological Seminary out in Pasadena and finished my uh, my MDiv there, my, my seminary degree there. And then I went to Duke Divinity School after that to do another degree and then uh, went into pastoral ministry there. So um, my mind has definitely evolved on some things. And so um, right now, uh, as, uh, as you mentioned earlier, I'm pastor at uh, Williamsburg Baptist church. We're just across the street from the college of William and Mary and um, about a block and a half from uh, colonial Williamsburg. So I'm uh, trying to do uh, justice and uh, peace ministry here and uh, work with the congregation. I've been here for about two years, and it's really been uh, 
uh, a fun time, I think a challenging time too, um, trying to uh, uh, get uh, in- ingrained in this community and uh, to uh, get to know our people and uh, to see what God can do here. That's wonderful. Well, looking at the topic we have today, um, Daniel, uh, looking at the church as it relates to race and racism and uh, taking it from a historical perspective until present day time, uh, look at those implicit and explicit biases that are present. Uh, And I assume through your journey and talking with you somewhat that uh, Mm. some of these things have been very relevant in your life. Uh, so I guess we'll start off. Um, uh, let's just back up and, and, and take it from a historical perspective in terms of uh, the church and, and its uh, role in per- perpetuating uh, racism, or if you think it hasn't, or, or do you think the church has been uh, uh, a neutral body in it? Sure, sure. Um yeah, that's that's a, another long discussion. I I think um, you know one thing that's been important to me was coming to the realization that sometimes to to bear truthful witness uh, to the church to to what the church has done, we have to have some some um, tough conversations. I find that people are really interested in the church just trying to to fess up to its its history, its very complicated history. Uh, sometimes people um, want to um, make the church sound like, oh, this is, you know, we're, we're perfect. We're, you know, or even if we're not perfect, we're just forgiven. And, and they, they kind of uh, turn a blind eye to what the church has done in history, or they try to separate uh, themselves from uh, what the church has done in the past. And, you know, I'm, I have to say, um, you know, I'm, I, I don't find that to be very helpful anymore. Um, I find that a lot of people are really interested in, in encountering Christians uh, who say, yeah, the church has done a lot. And, and I'm still a Christian because I've seen the better side of things. And, and uh, I've seen how um, we can witness to the, the peace and the uh, justice and the beauty of God Um you know, and learn from these tragedies. And so uh, I find that people are a lot more interested in that than hearing somebody talk about how um, the church hasn't done anything in the past. So um, I think uh, in light of that, especially when it comes to, uh, you know, matters of race, uh, my gosh, where do you begin? Um, I think that the biblical story itself is full of um, these sort of uh, group dynamics where, where people are constantly fearful of, um, you know, quote unquote, the other. And I think um, like even right now we're going through uh, a series on the prophets in our Sunday school class. And um, I'm doing Jonah this week and um, just the, uh, the sort of um, uh, situations, the, the social dynamics that gave rise to a message like Jonah. I don't think that Jonah is often understood by by many Christians today, um, we kind of make it a story about this guy that got swallowed up by a fish, but that's, that's hardly the point. Um, the point is really, um, if I had a chance to rename the book of Jonah, it would probably be something like, uh, Jonah and Assyria, uh, rather than Jonah and the whale. 
Uh, and that's because um, Assyria, this, this bloodthirsty empire that's constantly nipping at the heels of, of the northern kingdom of Israel and would eventually overtake the northern kingdom of Israel in the 8th century B.C., um, you know, these are these are people that Jonah hated, not out of any sense of uh, uh, racism per se, but uh, out of a sense of, um, of violence, you know, that these people, um, the Assyrians were expanding their empire and um, and were threatening the northern kingdom of Israel and um, um to uh, ask Jonah to go preach repentance would be, you know, kind of like, you know, as, as I've sort of characterized it, it'd be like asking a Jewish rabbi in 1942 to go prophesy repentance to Berlin. You know, that's just a crazy, crazy scenario. And um, uh, we don't quite appreciate that when we read, read the book of Jonah uh, all the time. And, um, um, you know, the message, if you carry that, that, um, fact into your reading of the book of Jonah, you start to read toward the end about how Jonah is just waiting for judgment to fall in Nineveh, not because he's a spiteful person, but because he, he regards justice. You know, he, he's a, a just person and, um, and he wants uh, justice to be meted out in a retributional way. And God uh, leaves Jonah and the reader uh, with the question at the end of the book uh, about how, how God can, can, uh, bring God's self to, to destroy this, this uh, city with so many inhabitants, these people who don't know their right hand from their left. And so um, a lot of scholars think that this story was written much later in Israel's history about the historical Jonah, uh, the historical prophet Jonah. And uh, it was written to say, you know, how are we going to interact with our oppressors? How are we going to interact with, um, with our enemies? Um, are we going to wish that God judges them, or are we going to hope that God's mercy extends beyond the boundaries of Israel? And that's a real question that the people of God had to um, had to wrestle with. It's something that we have to wrestle with, and um, and even later in the New Testament, the early church has to wrestle with the the fact that God is opening up the borders of Israel to non-Jews, to Gentiles. And that's also something that I think the church takes for granted. And, and so we see at the very foundation of the church, there is this idea of race, uh, uh, not, not uh, merely uh, biology and heredity, but um, ra- race uh, as in uh, culture, um, as well as heredity to some extent, but culture, religion. Um, God is opening up the boundaries of Israel to, um, to people outside the fold. And um, and that's something that uh, that has repercussions that are very very similar, I think, to the racial uh, or racialized racialized um, context that we have today. Okay, so coming forward um, uh, from that biblical perspective, as, as you brought up in culture and religion, uh, as we look at the church now and specifically society and its worldview. Um, Splitting into many categories and um, and being defined by at the moment by uh, politics and and culture and and religion. But how is religion or or the church evolving or has it evolved uh, mm-hmm. in a sense or has it or is it still trapped somewhere that it doesn't even that it can't even identify itself. It has no identity. Wow. Um... Yeah, I, I think we have to be um, 
I think we have to be very specific about about what we mean by the church. Um, I think that this, uh, you know, you think about the global church, um, you know, I want to talk about, um, you know, how the West interacts with the rest of the church, uh-huh. um, how the, the uh, church outside the West interacts with other churches outside the uh-huh. West. Uh-huh. Uh, so there's that dynamic. Um, when we talk about the church in America specifically and, uh, and racial politics, um, in the U.S., I, it, you know, it, it goes across the board. You have, you know, your um, whether it's, um, you know, white folks or African-American folks um, or Hispanics, um, you know, and so on and so on, you know, who sort of um, fall behind the uh, um, the legacy of uh, just, for example, Dr. King. Um You've got uh, those folks still trying to, to seek racial reconciliation, um, still trying to seek justice, um, trying to um, improve the situation however they can in their own context. Uh, then you've got, I think, a lot of folks who are just silent on the matter, um, who know uh, what's right but are afraid for whatever reason to really pursue uh, a program of um, – uh, racial reconciliation, uh, if I could use that term. Um, and then uh, there are churches that, that are roadblocks to that, I believe. Um, you know, we, we just saw this all play out in the Southern Baptist Convention uh, with their gathering recently. Uh, the Southern Baptist, and I'll just say for, for any of our listeners, I'm not a Southern Baptist uh, pastor. Um, the uh, Williamsburg Baptist Church has not been a, a Southern Baptist church uh, for a few decades now. Um, but I will say as an outside observer, um, you know, it, it uh, was very noticeable that the SBC had trouble passing a, um, uh, a condemnation of the alt-right. And uh, the fact that it was pushed, I think is encouraging. Um, the fact that it was, um, um, that twice the measure failed um, is discouraging uh, for our SBC siblings. Uh, I think that was a black eye. It made it got a lot of national attention, and um, I, th- I think it was um, definitely uh, you know something that uh, speaks uh, you know the damage is done uh, is what I'm trying to say, and I, th- I think it speaks volumes. Um, but they were able to get something passed, and. Um, and I'd say that the whole spectrum in, in some manner is really uh, embodied in that one gathering, that there are people who are trying to push for, for positive change. There are people who um, just don't care and are, si- or are silent about it. And there, then there are others who actively oppose it and, and all somehow in the name of their, their common Christian beliefs. So. Okay. So how does this, this term that's being loosely thrown around these days, evangelicals playing into this, Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's the, the $50,000 question, I suppose, you know, um, scholars, uh, you know, historians of, of American religion, and American church history, as well as uh, British church history and um, and sociologists of religion all have a, a wonderful time at conferences uh, trying to debate what precisely constitutes an evangelical. <laughs> and uh, I actually was interviewed for a piece for the Daily Beast on um, uh, on whether uh, how people 
term evangelical. I mean, you can have, you know, someone as, as, uh, you know, a far right as, uh, as Franklin Graham, you know, embrace the term. Uh, you've got middle of the road folks like, uh, Wheaton college, uh, out in the Chicago area, you know, embracing the term. And then you've got sort of like leftward progressive folks, uh, like Fuller seminary or Tony Campolo, uh, you know, all, um, uh, also embracing the term and those folks would not have a very fun lunch together. Um, um, the, the evangelical moniker is something where uh, I, I say there's about, you know, eight or nine traits. And then if you uh, have at least five of them, you're probably an evangelical. Uh, so uh, it's really hard to define. Um, I know um, that the, uh, the recent uh, election uh, presidential election um, definitely was, was a, a factor in, in the latest factor in, in um, understanding what an evangelical was. Of course we have, um, pollsters to thank for that uh however they defined an evangelical mm-hmm. um but uh but also we we know that uh there was a, a by their definitions and standards uh for polling um there was a huge evangelical turnout uh, a white evangelical turnout turnout for trump and so that definitely has played into um i think uh, a number of people um identifying more closely with the term and another uh, group of people um, finding it less uh, possible to identify with the term. And so I, I know that for myself, my, um, you know, I, I, uh, I don't mind describing myself as a progressive evangelical because there are still many, many aspects of evangelical identity that I would call my own. Um, but at the same time, I'm, um, you know, I, I do have trouble after the presidential election sort of identifying with that term. Um, <laughs> And uh, uh, at the same time, I know that there are others who um, who have had difficulty for one reason or another identifying with the term, even though, you know, um, some of those trademarks, which are, you know, uh, intense evangelical piety or spiritual piety um, yeah. uh, and uh, intense energy for mission, uh, you know, regard for scripture. Um, I, I own all of that. Um, and yet, uh, the way that I see those things handled sometimes by evangelicals uh, raises a, a number of questions and concerns for me. Um, I know I would also, you know, point to race as as one factor too. And I've I've pushed this book before. I, I should probably start getting royalties from the publisher. Um, <laughs> but I've I've pushed the book divided by faith, um, okay. evangelical religion, and the problem of race in America. It's by Oxford University Press, and it's written by two sociologists of religion, Michael Emerson and Christian Smith. And and they really tell the story well. It's one of the reasons why I'm a big fan of the book. Um, they tell the story well uh, of how evangelicals both perpetuated and um, um, perpetuated racism and also uh, became thoroughly involved in fighting racism. Um, and then they sort of explore the social dynamics and even theological dynamics that, um, that make that such a, a complex story. Um, and one of the things that, um, that they identify as a big problem for evangelicals is, is that uh, our uh, you know, evangelical theology tends to um, prioritize the individual and um, and oftentimes uh, that uh, disables um, 
the evangelical uh, imagination from even conceiving of something like structural racism or systemic racism, because, um, you know, a collective consciousness or a collective identity is, is often not what evangelicals are working with when they read their Bibles or they pray or they read their devotional literature. And, you know, I just had a a conversation with a a number of pastors uh, this week about this very thing that um, whether it's, um, whether it's our religious life, our life of faith, or uh, even American individualism, we are really um, conditioned by our, our um, environment to uh, really think of the individual, think of ourselves um, as the, uh, the ultimate uh, um, you know, uh, focus of our lived experience. We uh, seldom think in terms of an us or a we or even if we do, it's it's um, uh, not in a very influential way. Um, when I talk about this, uh, you know how this relates to the Bible of thinking of yourself as as part of the people of God. Um, this is a really strange notion uh, for a lot of people. They're not used to thinking of that concept of the people of God as extending, uh, you know, back through the Old Testament to Abraham. You know, um, that uh, even if they are, even if that concept is um, present in their vocabulary, they, they haven't thought very deeply about it and about how we are um, an extenuation of this family of faith and um, to learn from our, our spiritual ancestors, as it were, or to, to even have an ancestry mm-hmm. is, is kind of a novel idea uh, to them. They think of ancestry as uh, at best what you might be able to, to find on ancestry.com or something like that, you know, <laughs> um, but we, um, we uh, seldom look at the Bible as our family history. I think that's that's a notable omission. So would, would that, uh, would, would the lack of reflection, uh, we're going back to what you said about the environment being the basis uh, uh, of this faith versus American individualism. Uh, mm-hmm. So we can't connect the Bible as being part of that shared history or or we just isolate that as something that's just there that perpetuates Mm -hmm. something. Yeah. I I think the Bible is often looked at as um, two things, at least Um, uh, one, it's a mechanism for salvation. And then, you know, we have to go back to see what, what people sort of uh, consider to be salvation. Um, And, uh, and that's, that's a discussion unto itself. Um, and, and the Bible is also seen as a compendium of, of morality. And so people sort of pick and choose what, what morals, uh, and I'm talking about conservatives and progressives, um, <laughs> people pick and choose uh, what morals in the Bible they consider to be normative and then, you know, um, use it as a way to uh, um, harness the young, whereas the, the, the focus on salvation is often a, a way to, uh, give comfort to the old. And so um, those two, um, I think, social um, objectives uh, become the, the uh, grid that uh, whether we realize it or not, oftentimes we, we push the Bible through. And um, I, I think that uh, is sort of accounted for by our failure to really capture the imaginations of our youth and, you know, the exodus that we're seeing from um, in, in churches of young people. Uh, because we, we've turned it into these ways to harness the young and give comfort to the old, but we haven't seen the Bible as, as something that is um, uh, formative of, of, our, of our imaginations. 
um, that really um, ushers us into a story. And emphasis is really on story, uh, a story that God tells that um, uh, sometimes doesn't give us clear and easy answers, but but at least it uh, uh, it enmeshes in a conversation of how we can bear witness to justice and peace and love in our own context. And we do that by learning from the stories of our spiritual ancestors. So, so this, so the whole perspective there lends itself uh, uh, to going back to this whole thing about the evangelical, um, yeah, and not and not your five um, defining progressive evangelical ways. But uh, sure. yeah. I'll, look, I'll look past that. But uh, yeah. um, our, 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 so it, we're looking at this whole theory of isolationism as it, as, as it perpetuates in terms of mm. the environment. Um, yeah. So. Does that perpetuate that whole thing of belonging to or wanting to be with folks that look like me or or, mm. or on a Sunday morning or on a daily basis in activity at home and, and, and only in those uncontrolled environments do we and we have no choice to, to mixture, but we don't do it in a way that uh, brings about any uh, cohesive intermingling or, or, or sure. gathering. So. Yeah, I, I think when you... Uh, that raises a great point. I, I think when you uh, sort of reduce the Bible to those those uh, mechanisms and you um, really prioritize the individual, um, the Bible kind of loses its power to uh, to call us to uh, uh, what what one of my professors called the, the conversion of the imagination. Um, you know, we instead of being challenged by the, the rich and complex story of the Bible, we um, uh, we tend to fall into um, more um, uh, weightier um, uh, influences like individualism. Uh, we uh, give in to uh, you know the sort of reptilian uh, strategies of fight or flight. And that often, um, you know, turns itself into uh, uh, a journey to feel comfortable, you know, in our consumerism, which is another huge social dynamic. We, we, we uh, seek church out. We, we seek to uh, embody ways of uh, safety uh, that uh, tend to surround us with comfort. And that usually means people who look like us, people who think like us. Um, there is not a very um, great desire there for diversity. And so uh, those places where, where that diversity is, is most clearly represented in Scripture, um, those, those parts get muted. You know, we, we look at the Good Samaritan story, for example, as um, a story about um, – uh, being nice to people in need. And that's like, that's not the point of the story at all. Like everybody knows you're <laughs> supposed to be nice to people in need. That's not why Jesus tells the story. You know, Jesus tells the story because uh, uh, the, the scribe, you know, the, the Torah scholar asks him, well, who's my neighbor? Cause he, he went up to Jesus and asked him, you know, what do you do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, uh, you know, what do you think? And he says, well, love God and neighbor with all that you are. And you know, I'm paraphrasing, but um, <laughs> Jesus says, you're right. And and then, uh, you know, love your neighbor as yourself is, um, is part of it uh, right out of Leviticus. And uh, um, he, he wants to justify himself. The text tells us he wants to justify himself and that which causes should cause readers to scratch their heads. 
what does he want to justify himself about? And he asks the question, who is my neighbor? And that is a real question because in different parts of Torah, you kind of get different answers to that question. And, and so rabbis would debate, which is more important, you know, to be uh, a neighbor to, uh, to your fellow Israelite or to be a neighbor to everyone, whether it's fellow Israelite or the stranger in the land. And uh, Jesus's answer, the answer to that question, who is my neighbor, is um, to put a Samaritan who is a political enemy, a racial outcast, and a religious heretic in the role of the model neighbor. And so when Jesus ends that story, uh, he tells, um, he asks the, the, the Torah scholar, um, so who acted neighborly? And the, and the Torah scholar can't even say the Samaritan, like he's too embarrassed. He can't even admit it. He just says the one who showed mercy and walks away. Um, he walks away. So, um, you know, we turn that story into a, a story about the Samaritan being nice to the, to the, the person on the side of the road. That's just a prop. Uh, that's not the reason Jesus tells tells the story. But but you know when we um, when we have given our our minds over to and I'll I'll use my old fundamentalist language when we when we become worldly in our thinking, mm-hmm. um, you know we we tend to um, uh, fall to those social dynamics that are weightier than our biblical imagination. And and one of those things is consumerism. The other is is fear of the other. And so we'll we'll seek to embody those in our worship, and our worship will be very, you know, in um, uh, some cases it'll be very white and very Protestant and evangelical, and in other cases it'll be, um, you know, owing to other traditions. And so um, uh, I, I think again, when when we reduce the Bible to just these these simple little uh, uh, objectives, whether we realize we're doing it or not. Um, yeah. We, we fall prey to larger cultural forces, and one of those is seeking um, homogeneity in our communities of faith. So in, in your past, pastorship or your walk, uh, how, how do you address these uh, or these issue of breaking the power of the past? How do you speak mm-hmm. of the past? I mean, how do you, how do you work towards that uh, and, and break that mindset of the, of the illustrative um, stories, stories or metaphors in the Bible that people uh, look at on face value and not take. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah, that's a great question. And, and it's something that I ask myself all the time because <laughs> I'm still <laughs> figuring it out as a, as a young pastor. Um, I think, you know, I look at my own story. Um, you know, I'm, I'm half Brazilian and, um, and I was raised by an immigrant woman um, and, um, you know, I, I didn't even realize how much racism I had seen until I, I took a graduate class at Fuller Seminary, uh, and, and shout out to, uh, Dr. Uh, Love Seacrest. Um, uh, uh, she uh, is an amazing professor down there at Fuller, but she taught a class on, uh, it was called race and identity in the new Testament. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I took the class because I was really interested in Jewish Christian relations and I was really interested in how Christianity became its own religion um, and not just a, a sect of Judaism. And so I took the class for those reasons, but I, I ended up getting half the class, uh, you know, was basically just critical race theory. And so, uh, 
uh, I realized in that class uh, a few things, uh, to say the least, um, one of which was that um, I had actually been dealing with racism my entire life. You know, I always wondered why people were harsh or said this, this, that, or the other. And then after taking that class, I thought, oh, my goodness, I was being treated like an immigrant. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, I was uh, encountering anti-immigrant sentiment, and I thought people were just being mean. Um, and so it really gave me eyes to, to contextualize uh, a lot of my experiences uh, and, my, and some of my mother's experiences as well. Um, uh, but another thing that I, I realized was that my colorblindness was, was really inadequate to deal with the the uh, the full measure of the problem of race in America, and and so for that I'm I'm ever you know forever grateful to, to Dr. Seacrest and um, and um, my goodness um, the the rest is sort of uh, history. Uh, I've been on a, a mission to uh, to try to understand uh, race, uh, the problems. I'm reading a great book right now by by Willie Jennings. Uh, who used to teach at Duke, uh, now teaches at Yale. Uh, okay. Books called *The Christian Imagination: uh, Theology uh, and the Origins of Race*. Uh, it's pretty pretty hefty if you haven't had a, a philosophy or theology background, but um, but it's still there's some remarkable things that he says, and it's uh, fantastic meditation on on why things are the way they are today. Um, but I've you know I've uh, continued in different directions to try to understand how to cope with this problem, especially from the perspective of a predominantly white um, congregation. You know, I'll say that Williamsburg Baptist uh, is a predominantly white congregation. We do have um, people from a lot of different backgrounds, uh, from different uh, Asian uh, uh, descents, and uh, we have Hispanic folks, uh, including myself. I'm I'm Latino. Um, uh, we have um, uh, some African American folks, uh, Native American folks who who worship with us, uh, and uh, I'm very grateful that things seem to keep uh, growing more and more diverse um, uh, by by the year. Um, especially having the the campus across the street, that's been a real real blessing for us. But. Um, you know, one of the things really is trying to re-narrate the scriptures, and you can only really do that with um, uh, with some heavy lifting. Um, actually, let me back up even further. The the greatest asset <laughs> that you can have in in this effort is patience, hmm. um, or as I like to call it, uh, you know, uh, sort of a, a balance between the uh, the activist and the moderate. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> the, okay. the the activist and the graduate. I, I like to say I'm, I have a, uh, the heart of an activist and the mind of a graduate. And, um, and depending on how the day goes, you might, um, um, you know, one, one side might uh, have a good day. The other side might have a bad day and that's okay. As long as somebody has a good day. Um, <laughs> uh, but the, you know, gradualism, I think gets a bad rap. Um, and that's because so often gradualism is seen as a, uh, and just just for our, our listeners who might be wondering what I'm talking about, uh, gradualism is that belief that things move slowly. And so racial reconciliation in particular, um, you know, we should just understand that 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 things move slowly um, and we shouldn't be so activistic. And that's the problem with gradualism. And I sympathize with that problem is that uh, oftentimes gradualism becomes an excuse for not doing more. And I don't believe in that. Like, I, I don't that that is I don't believe that. Um, 
that it should be used as, as an excuse to do more. If you can do more, do more. Um, don't use gradualism as an excuse um, or as a, a means of quieting activism. Um, but at the same time, I realize that societies move slowly, that movements move slowly, and that you have to have a good gradualist ground game to um, to back up your activist. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know I, this this battle is too important to to just work on one front. And right. uh, I think we all we all need those those solid you know, stalwarts that will be in the trenches and be there for a long time, you know, stay rooted in the community and work to, um, to chip away at, at, uh, resistance to, um, to diversity, uh, little by little, but also you need those activists. Um, I'll put it this way, you know, baseball is a good metaphor for this. You know, you, not everybody is a power hitter, uh, in a, in a a lineup, you know, you've got some people who are a lot better at just getting on base um, and, uh, I think that when it comes to social change, you need those, those power hitters, you need those activists, uh, who can swing for the fences and who can, um, you know, drive in some runs. Uh, but you also need some base hitters, you know, who can just make small, small progress, um, through, um, just culture building or culture rebuilding, uh, or culture subverting, you know, however long that does. And I think a lot of people, a lot of activists get burned out because the only activism that they know is that sort of systemic structural change. Um, but we need people to realize that even in the course of a lifetime, you, you may not be able to do, but do much more than, um, than just make a, a bunch of little uh, base hits, so to speak. And, and that's right. okay too, because it's, it's still progress. And so in my church context, um, you know, you have to lay down, um, some um, some groundwork uh, for the biblical narrative. Um, I think that uh, I think that pastors really struggle with this, um, and and at least from from the the preaching ministries that I've been under uh, and that I've been exposed to, I think that um, that there is a, a shortage of pastors who really have a full fledged scriptural imagination. Um, pastors who um, um, really know the history behind the scriptures as well as the message of the scriptures themselves. And I think, you know, for, for all of you folks who are considering going to seminary, drink deeply, you know, learn as much as you can, and then don't stop learning. Um, you know, I, I kind of um, had the good fortune of being exposed to people who approached uh, seminary like someone was approaching medical school. Um, you know, like for pastors, you have to know a lot, uh, or excuse me, you have to know a little about a lot, you know, you're almost like a general practitioner. Um, you have to keep abreast of, of a lot of different developments and you have to, um, uh, know a little bit about a lot. And then for, for you future seminary professors out there, uh, you're like specialists, you're like cardiologists or neurosurgeons, you know, you specialize on one thing and you have very deep knowledge in that one thing. And you further knowledge by your research in that area. And so I think for pastors, you know, um, drink deeply from um, the study of the scriptures. Um, even, you know, don't be afraid to geek out every once in a while and, and read a dissertation. You know, um, uh, that, that's something that, that has, has uh, enriched my, my own practice. And so I, I really approach this as, you know, for you know, part of my ministry is family and part of my ministry is just downright professional. Um, and I, act, I try to act like a professional um, when it comes to my own um, study and uh, 
and uh, awareness of best practices and things like that. So lay down a scriptural ground game. Uh, be patient um, when and and be active in your community. Um, I know I'm. Uh, trust me, I, I I know how how busy pastors are. I'm a solo pastor myself. I don't have a. a a pastoral staff. I've got a part-time music minister and a part-time children and youth person. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I, I know what it's like to be completely busy, but I would say, you know, prioritize getting out into the community and keeping your, even if you can't be involved, keep your ear to the ground, keep your finger on the pulse of your community. Uh, I can't think of any other metaphors for it right now, but I mean, the, the message is <laughs> yeah. just get, um, get involved and see what's happening and to the best that you can try to knit um, points of contact with uh, between your congregation and what's going on in the community. Um, we, we've been able to, um, uh, to see a number of community initiatives here in Williamsburg uh, community groups um, start to be um, have board members um, come from our church. Um, and so they're, they're really, uh, getting involved in one effort or another. And so, um, I, I, I think that that's great. I hope it bleeds more into the congregation. I hope the congregation bleeds more into the community. And, and in that way, um, you know, we will really see, uh, uh, you know, what some people, uh, call a, a church without walls. And that's really what we're trying to be. That's great. Well, you, you know, you brought up a, a host of questions to me when you were just talking. And, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm going to just narrow it down since we don't have about 12 minutes left. Sure. Uh, uh, and, and try to get at something that, that's, that's sticking it, even though uh, we keep crossing this bridge, and especially when I'm referring to Black Lives Matter. Mm, yeah. Uh, and, and especially when we, we just, this discussion comes up in the church, whether it's black church or white, predominantly black or predominant white church, uh, it seems to go seems to go along the same lines. Uh, and the justification using the Bible, uh, and they're mm-hmm. saying, and, and I'm and I'm asking the question of them, uh, mm-hmm. you know, how can you say that you're a spiritually mature or or a, a spiritually maturing Christian uh, yeah. while you remain emotionally immature? Mm-hmm. So how how do you see that in relation to this whole thing with Black Lives Matter movement and and addressing that issue, especially in in this time as, as we've seen some prominent things happening in the news? Yeah, uh, that's a that's a fantastic question. Um, I I I am very hopeful and fearful at the same time for our 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 young movements. Um. And I think that an, it, I, I think that our current situation uh, exposes another disparity in our society, uh, not just a disparity of race, but also a disparity of generations. Hmm. Um, I think that that um, young people are angry and they're frustrated. I also think that that um, that that definitely bleeds into their activism. And for, you know, for whatever reason, sometimes their while their their ideals are really interesting, um, I don't always get the feeling that that um, that our young folks uh, are into pragmatics or pra- practical steps towards that vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when they're disappointed, yeah, there's a lot of rage. There's a lot of uh, anger. Um, I wish 
you know, and, and I think this is not this is not a panacea or a you know a, a, a silver bullet you know solution, but I, I think that uh, older generations, and in particular older generations who have fought those battles, um, I th- I think there's a great need for for young people to to hear perspective. Uh, to hear stories of, of people who have been activistic their whole lives and still are struggling uh, to, to see the change that they want to bring about. Um, I think they need to hear about pragmatics and, and organ, you know, the, a history of organizing. Um, but the problem is, is that, that oftentimes, uh, and this is my, my challenge to older generations who, who have been in the trenches, um, oftentimes it comes across as you should do it this way. Or, you know, I did it this way, so that means you, you need to do it this way. Or, yeah. um, or, or there's a, a separation. I, I've actually seen, you know, uh, there's a gentleman who, um, uh, you know, was very active uh, in the civil rights movement in the 60s. And I saw him come along, a, a, young, uh, a young guy, and just completely disparage him and, and how spoiled they are. You know, it, that, that right. rhetoric just doesn't help. Um, what, what young people need is perspective. They need, uh, guidance. They need, um, you know, wisdom, but that doesn't always take the form of you have to do it the way that we did it. Or, um, or, you know, I had the real struggle. You don't have the real struggle. That that's just not helpful. Hmm. So, so flipping that list, flipping that, that point, then how, how can the, can can the more established churches and and as I'm speaking to in the Baptist realm um, uh, more so uh, become less that of uh, a, a one that's sitting back saying you need to do it my way or or we just don't do it at all um, right you know because I think it's it's I agree with you in, in terms that there needs to be more dialogue and and. Uh, understanding between the generations, but how do we get there yeah. when we are stuck <laughs> on this, this thing, this, whatever this thing is, um, mm. uh, in terms of the five points, I can, I'm, I'm going to remember that to the day I die of evangelicalism. Um, <laughs> so I'll let you yeah. down on that. So. My goodness. Uh, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's a money question, isn't it? Yeah. Um, how do we do it? Um, Gosh, the, 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 the phrase eyes on the prize comes to mind. I, I think um, I, I think we have to be clear about what our common shared vision is, mm-hmm. um, that we're all in this together to see greater freedom and justice uh, and peace come about. Um, But you know the the great the, the great difficulty in organizing is you do have a number of of uh, you have egos in the room you have perspectives in the room uh, you have different histories in the room you know how do we how do we harmonize these things rather than turning it into a, a cacophony you know a, a chaotic mess and and that's that is really where spiritual maturity is born out. Um, that we uh, we adopt practices that that make us better listeners, I think, than um, than um, pontificators, <laughs> you know, uh, people who uh, who demand things be done a certain way. Um, 
I think we embody practices where we speak for ourselves uh, rather than for others. Uh, practices where um, uh, we um, we try to uh, coordinate our shared gifts and not compete. Um, and, and this has to be applied, you know, in specific contexts. And so I, I, I can't just come up with, um, you know, uh, a 10 point plan for, you know, th- th- this could this could happen in a church community. It can happen in a denominational association. Uh, I will say there, there's some great work being done on the Baptist front. The, the New Baptist Covenant, uh-huh. uh, I think, is a great group of people who are doing this kind of work. Um, I'd say uh, I have to, you know, uh, give a shout out to my Alliance of Baptist friends. I know um, they they often get um, um, labeled as the, the liberal Baptist group, but um, they're doing some great work for, for justice and peace. And I wish, I wish that all um, peace seeking uh, churches, whether liberal or conservative would, would, uh, would keep their eyes on the prize a little bit more. Um, and um, let's see, I, I think the CBF cooperative Baptist fellowship that's uh, meeting in Atlanta in a few days, I think they're doing some wonderful things as well. Okay. Um, but um, and they've they've been collaborating quite a bit with the New Baptist uh, Covenant as well. But um, yeah, there you know, organization isn't easy. Organizing isn't easy. It's um, you're coordinating different people and different objectives sometimes, and um, and you really have to try to shape a forge uh, a, a forge a uh, common vision. And at yeah. the same time, give people the freedom that they need to be uh, uh, using their gifts and, and bringing their perspective uh, uh, toward the objective of being fruitful. Um, but that's a difficult and, and yet rewarding tension to manage. Yeah, so in the few minutes we have left, tell us what Daniel Wilson is involved with in, uh, in the Williamsburg area and 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 the surrounding area in terms of addressing these issues and what are the, the, the things we should be looking out for and what can we join in and participate with? Oh my goodness. Well, if, if you're in the Williamsburg area, um, there, there's a number of things going on. Um, we've got, uh, um, I'll, I'll just leave off the, uh, the political action groups <laughs> because uh, <laughs> for obvious reasons, um, but but there are some political action groups that are doing some some good things that uh, don't necessarily involve candidates and campaigning. They're they're working on moral issues and and that deserves to be mentioned. But uh, at the same time, um, we have the uh, Lemon Project at the College of William and Mary uh, that's doing some fantastic things in recovering our shared history. Uh, Colonial Williamsburg uh, has a wonderful uh, program of African American history and and let me. Um, let me also say it's really American history. So um, uh, Stephen Seals uh, has done a great job with that. And uh, he's just been, um, uh, he's just taken on a new role uh, as, as the, uh, uh, the historic character, uh, James Lafayette. Um, but they're doing some wonderful things to, to help us see our shared American history. As we do. Uh, here in this church, we, we're doing a number of different possibilities uh, uh, of uh, to get involved in. We already host a forum that uh, is not based out of the church. We host it. Um, so we offer physical space and, and I happen to be on the board uh, of this group called all together. Uh, all together was started after um, the uh, uh, Rodney King trial. 
uh, it's not the trial of Rodney King, the Rodney King beating uh, and the, the consequent uh, trial of the officers involved. Um, uh, and it was started as a community forum to educate um, about uh, uh, racial justice and racial issues. That group has been going on. Um, the NAACP uh, continues to do its work here. They meet at First Baptist Church across the street. Um, there is uh, the Black Lives Matter chapter. We're still uh, dreaming up big ways of uh, impacting our community. Uh, our Village is another group that's been doing a lot of racial uh, reconciliation that I haven't been as involved with because they, they, uh, it's hard to get to their meetings uh, at the, the, on Monday nights for me. It doesn't really work with my schedule and my four kids. But um, <laughs> uh, it's, um, so they're doing some wonderful work, and I have some lovely, lovely friends who are, are um, working with them. But yeah, um, there's there's some some great things we've been working on um, uh, trying to build better relations with our police force here. Um, there have been a number of um, of uh, uh, opportunities to do that, uh, as well as the hiring of a new chief uh, it, for Williamsburg Police Department. Um, so yeah, there's a number of things going on uh, right now um, that uh, that we're addressing in our community. Uh, but the, we have a great group of uh, of uh, co-conspirators and uh, co-collaborators trying to, uh, to seek uh, a more just and peaceful Williamsburg and uh, Williamsburg area, James city County and, and New York County. Great. Great. Well, thank you, Daniel, uh, for this uh, enlightening discussion today. And, and, and certainly in the future, we're going to have you back as your name. I wrote down some points that can be expounded on uh, in more in depth and we're going to get to them sometime in the next six months or so. So Sounds thank great. you again. Thank you. Um, thank you. And thank you for tuning in today. Uh, we look forward to you tuning in next Thursday when we'll be broadcasting live from the Navajo Reservation in Cove, Arizona. Have a blessed week. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.